everyone, and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight, the publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital magazine and website at ncreview.com. On NCR, we review the top books and films having an impact on global awakening. And on this show, we celebrate consciousness in action and explore the many and varied paths to awakening. Our guest today is Nick Seneca Jankel. He's a 21st century shaman who has helped over 50,000 individuals, hundreds of world-class organizations like Microsoft, Disney, and Nike, a number of national governments, and millions of TV viewers across the globe to switch on, unleash their creativity, and break through real challenges to thrive. He has a triple first-class degree from Cambridge University in medicine and philosophy, uh, and I think the third was psychology, and a successful career in advertising and tech entrepreneurship behind him. Now, after 20 years of research and practice at the cutting edge of personal and corporate change, he has developed Breakthrough Biodynamics, unifying science and wisdom. He is a partner at creative management consultancy, WeCreateWorldwide.com, and the co-founder of wisdom and well-being company, RifeAndReady.com. Today we're going to talk about his new book called Switch On, Unleash Your Creativity and Thrive with the New Science and Spirit of Breakthrough. Welcome, Nick. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, I believe that your book, Switch On, is a must-read for anyone struggling to make a better life and a better world. And, um, you know, I, I right. purposely have steered it away from the woo-woo. Your book has a, a hip but heart-centered vibe, and you manage to make it simple without being simplistic. I want to know who you had in mind when you wrote the book. <laughs> That's a great question. I had in mind, I guess, a couple of people. One was me for most of my 20s and 30s struggling to make sense of all the different ways of living and, and not really finding a path that I felt was both um, truly able to heal but also rigorous. So really for that person. And then I guess I also had in mind the sort of people who are what I call love curious, who are interested in, in consciousness, interested in wisdom, interested in love, interested in connection, but have not drunk the Kool-Aid and are still uh, sort of struggle a little bit with some of the hallmarks of the New Age movement. That's interesting. Um, I noticed on your website, uh, of which you have many, which you can tell us about, um, that you had in mind the digital generation. Um, the millennials, I, I, and yet um, you you talk about just anybody who is love curious. Um, were you specifically going for the potential movers and shakers coming down the pike? Yes, I mean I I I, I kind of have a belief that the baby boomer generation has got lots of wonderful wisdom teachers who speak to it, uh, to speak to the generation. 
and um, a certain type of uh, sort of teacher. And I think the generation that's coming into, uh, I guess, power now, um, that I call the digital generations, which is a kind of mixture of Gen X and the millennials, um, is a big, actually a bigger generation, more people, but it ha I think it hasn't really found its teachers yet as a generation. And um, I believe there are lots of people who are from our, this generation and, and, re and beginning to be ready to teach. And it's taken me a long time to be ready to teach. So I'm 41 now, and it's taken me a good decade since I discovered what I wanted to do to know that I could actually hold space for, um, for true healing and awakening. Um, and I, I think there are lots of people like me out there who are sort of to coming of age, if you like. So I definitely wrote it with that younger um, audience in mind, but also not, never wanting to be ex exclusive and alienating. But certainly it was a, a conscious choice to, to use language of my generation, not, not an older generation. Right, right. Now, some of the vibe that comes through, I think, is uh, informed by your career in advertising. Now, with your education and prodigious intellectual ability, what on earth led you into advertising? <laughs> well, actually, you'd be surprised how many people with a great education and uh, brilliant uh, minds actually do end up in advertising. It's a kind of catch-all for people who are smart but don't know what they want to do, so they go into advertising for a bit. Um, I kind of fell into it. I, I, I was... At the time, I w had applied to do a PhD program in history of thought, history of intellectual uh, thinking, and I was actually recommended by my father that there was a job in advertising called planning, which is basically a sort of creative strategy, that used uh, psychology and philosophy uh, and applied it. So I thought, well, that sounds like a good thing to do for a year while I wait to uh, work out what PhD program to do. So I applied um, to different agencies and, and, and got a job. And actually, it is extremely powerful training to learn how to put into practice big ideas in a super practical and super polished way. So I'm very glad I did it, but I'm also very glad I got out um, before it had sort of swamped my soul. Mm. Um, and uh, no, I mean, I wouldn't be able to do what I do now without that training. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I definitely wouldn't necessarily recommend it to anyone. <laughs> now, you, you had some, something of a crisis that led you onto the path of what you call a 21st century shaman. Oh, yes, I did. I had a, well, I had a number. I had a number of sort of rippling, small rippling breakdowns, but I had, then I had a sort of epic, epic breakdown, which, touch wood, is my, has been my last real breakdown in terms of out of control, um, no idea how to get out of it breakdown. Uh, and actually, I believe breakdown is part of transformation. So um, I just sort of distinguish between, a, between a, an unhelpful breakdown and a helpful breakdown. So I had an unhelpful breakdown um, where I was just burnt out. I'd been running my own creative agency for six years, very young. I'd just turned 30. And... I went through this kind of, I mean, I, 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 I can only make sense of it by, by describing it as a, a sort of a moment of, of 
profound heartbreak where I realized that the career I was in and the trajectory I was on was almost diametrically opposed to what I wanted to do originally with my life. So I, I, when I was 15, 16, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And um, so I, I, was, I was now in a position where I was using psychology and anthropology and human science in general to find that little piece of everyone's heart um, that is damaged and, and in pain and believe that if it has something, it will um, it'll be okay, it will be loved, which is really the core of marketing in its old form is to find the weak points in our field, if you like, um, in our ego structures and st stimulate them by saying, well, if you have this product, people will think you're sexy or you'll, then you'll finally belong to the group or whatever it is. And I realized in sort of horror that I was using these powerful, powerful tools of, of healing, uh, which are agnostic and neutral. They can be used for anything. And I was using them in, in absolutely the way I did not believe is right for the world. And in a very quick period of time, I realized I wanted to flip back onto the career I had 10 years earlier when I was so passionate about being a psychiatrist. So where did you go from there? <laughs> well, first I had to do something that was one of the great lessons of life, um, something that a lot of wisdom teachers talk about. I had to let go of what I had. So I had, you know, roughly 50 staff. I had um, a bit of fame, a bit of um, early sort of paper, paper millions, um, and I had to let go of it all because I had to really let go of that structure. I couldn't, I couldn't sort of change my career. I had to absolutely change it. So that was the first step, was to let go of all this um, accoutrement. Uh, I had to make a lot of people redundant, which was not a very happy thing to do. Uh, I had to say goodbye to a company. I put six years of my absolute lifeblood into it. And then I set about on the journey of, of sort of saying never again. I will never be burnt out again. I don't want to ever be depressed again. I don't ever be panic, have panic attacks. I must be able to resolve these issues, and then I want to be able to teach other people how to do it. And, not, and then and when I made a commitment, which I'm still working on, is I didn't want to just then teach wealthy people this stuff. I wanted to make sure I play my part in bringing the other millions of people worldwide who will never pay to go on um, an expensive retreat or who um, can't afford that kind of experience. So I, I, I made a commitment to uh, spiritual awakening and I made a commitment to social justice through spiritual awakening. And that, that I've been playing that out, unfolding that package, which is a big package. <laughs> I've been unfolding it uh, in the, over the last 10 years. Now, you are using the word spiritual. Um, in what sense? Well, many senses, I guess, but the ultimate sense for me about what spirituality is, I guess as a perennialist, as someone who believes that there's a kind of common chord to all spiritual traditions, my kind of essence uh, of what I talk about when I say spiritual is, is a combination of realizing one, we're all connected, um, and I actually believe we're all part of one thing, which is people call non-duality. So that's the kind of basis of what I think is the most spiritual path around this belief that we're connected. Um, 
and that um, we are not our ego. We are we are more um, than our um, than our ego would let us think we are. And when we access that, we start to really understand how to thrive. And the main point of access of that is through the heart, not the mind. That's what I mean by spiritual. And obviously there are lots of other parts to a spiritual life. But for me, the core of it is learning how to open our heart, learning how to listen to our intuition, and learning how to feel that we are loved and connected uh, to this universe that we are intrinsically part of. So is that um, what you are referring to when you use the terms the tiny me and the great we? Yes, that's sort of the, I mean, one of the challenges of talking about these ideas is that um, they don't fit neatly onto the concepts we've been given by Western psychology and philosophy. So I've had to, when I teach, I have to try and give people an understanding of, what, of these ideas. What, how do you talk about the me which doesn't feel afraid, doesn't feel alone, doesn't feel disconnected? How do you talk about that me? Because it's not the same me that wakes up in the morning feeling scared or frightened of going and doing something. You know, that, it's a different kind of me. So I talk about the, in the book the tiny me being the small me who feels small, feels alone, feels one of nine billion people, feels a little irrelevant, uh, but also probably a little arrogant at times as well, versus this sense of me where I feel abundant, oceanic, connected, um, where I am more interested in the we and how we live and how we thrive than I am the, the sort of person that people call Nick and what he needs. Uh, so I call that the great we, um, this sense of we-ness that emerges when we really deepen our practice away from um, personal, taking things personally and needing things personally. You talk about breakthrough biodynamics. What do you mean by that? Oh, yes, that's a great question, and that's, again, something I'm unpacking. I, about three years into writing the book, um, so the book took me seven years to really get together and, and write, and about halfway through it, um, it was very differently structured to how it is structured now. And I was starting to notice something I hadn't really seen before, although I can't believe I hadn't, um, but it just had never struck me, that the process that I use in um, creativity with organizations, uh, which people call innovation. So the innovation process I have been using and, and developing uh, where you go down into what's possible before you come back up with uh, an idea or a, or a, a business concept. It's the, it was the same process, or it is the same process I've been using in individual transformation. And I've never really seen how similar it was. I've never drawn it. And what I started to do very quickly, once I had this beginning of this insight, was to realize that there's a, sa there's a very similar set of principles and, and micro-tools that you would use as an individual to transform or as an organization or as a, a society. And that's why I started to realize that's what the dynamics of breakthrough is. There's, there's a, there, is a, there seems to be a set blueprint for any form of breakthrough, whether it's the level of, of a family um, or the level of 
um, you know, the United Nations. It's, it's, it's the same archetypal blueprint. And so I looked at that, calling that breakthrough dynamics, the dynamics of having a breakthrough. And then uh, working actually with my wife, who's a biodynamic craniosacral therapist, and we were talking about the idea of what biodynamic means. And I added that concept into it because all breakthroughs, all transformations happen in people, and they happen in people's biologies. We are biological beings. We, we have cells and DNA and hormones and neurotransmitters. So every time we have a breakthrough, there is a biological reality to it. it it's in the body. It's embodied. And I wanted to really drive that home because I think a lot of people, um, both in the creative industries and in the mind-body-spirit space, there's a tendency to sort of leave the body and go into this sort of realm of what you know, the Greeks might call reason or, 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 or the ether or sort of floating away into dream-like places. And I wanted to root this work that I do very much in um, the sensations, both positive and negative, I wouldn't always use those words, that happen in our body. And that our body gives us the answers we need. We can listen to our body's wisdom when, when it, because it wants breakthroughs to happen for us. Like, you can feel it. And so that's what Breakthrough Biodynamics is. It's the study of how you encourage and, and support these naturally occurring breakthroughs that want to occur in society and they want to occur in individuals. And yet we get in the way of them with all our old beliefs and our old fears. And so the Breakthrough Biodynamics is the study of how to encourage those breakthroughs and then sustain them in the face of Resistance from ourselves, resistance from our lover, resistance from our kids, resistance from our colleagues who just don't really want to change. So it's one thing having the breakthrough. It's another thing being able to actually sustain that breakthrough uh, over months and years. One of the things I particularly appreciated about your book is the way you interweave science, medicine, sociology, psychology, but, you know, basically everything one would expect from a triple first. Um, <laughs> but... The, um, the, the notion of biodynamics, you know, is, is really taken from mind-body medicine that is such a vibrant um, <clears throat> field of study right now. And it's not just the breakthroughs that are reflected in our physiology, but it's also going down the first leg of that J-curve that you use. It's going down into depression. Yeah. It's our thoughts that are creating that physiological shift. And exactly. what you're showing is how we use the same mechanisms to pull ourselves back out. Exactly. It's like there's one, there's one sort of, if you imagine our body-mind is an orchestra, there's, you know, there's incredible possibilities. We can play a funeral march, uh, which might be you know, depression, and, um, or, you know, and then we can play some kind of crazy... Uh, screechy modernist thing which might be panic attacks or we can play you know a Mahler symphony so we can play all of it on this in this sort of biological uh, and I and I do really believe that exactly as you say it that the same mechanisms that pull us into despair and, and devastation and, and depression which I've suffered from uh, in the past uh, you know long term depression and, and sort of a manic manic depression type um, experiences that same biological wizardry once we understand it can, we can use it 
to do the to pull us out and to have breakthroughs and, and to lift us out. Um, and but we have to understand both dimensions of that to really master it. Nick, you have, I guess, understandably, uh, being English and being a Cambridge man, um, a real love affair with words, and in particular, alliteration. Uh, <laughs> you, you're, uh, one of the subtitles on your book is uh, Reconnect Your Heart, Rewire Your Brain, and Remix Your World. Um, that sounds very hip, particularly the remix part, which might need a little explanation for us of a certain generation. Um, <laughs> tell me, tell me what uh, what this kind of flow is. What well, this the the this, these three parts of, of this, this sort of strap line. Um, well, I mean, there's one part of it which is around sort of trying to jolt people out of that tune in, drop out mentality. So rather than switch on and, and then drop out of life, my book is a kind of call to say switch on and get stuck into life and particularly get stuck into playing a part in getting our communities back into some form of health uh, and our planet too, given the situation we're in. Um, it's certainly, I believe, the generation that I'm in, it's our job to look at awakening enlightenment as the beginning of a process of becoming more useful to society as opposed to the beginning of a process of dropping out of society. That's kind of what, what I, I've kind of, this is kind of a call to action to, 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 to get stuck in. That's, that's what it kind of the overall um, sense is. But it, to sort of drill it down, um, I, I, in the book I talk about these three facets of all human experience. The behaviors, which are um, our, our habits and our actions, which I call the hands, the low, you know, what our hands are doing, what our legs are doing. There's the head, um, what we think, our cognitive reality, our beliefs and ideas. And then there's the heart, um, which is our emotions and our, our spiritual connectivity or disconnection, uh, depending on where we're at. And so at every moment, we have something going on in all three of those. Um, and they can be disempowering or empowering. And so a lot of the book really is about how to tune those three parts of us um, at will, to master that. And the essential summary of everything I teach is, first of all, reconnect our heart. Everything that comes from the place of a connected heart is, is almost invariably going to be focused on Collective well-being, collective purpose, collective thriving. So reconnecting the heart is our first job um, and something that I didn't realize for many years of my life, how important that bit is. Then once our heart is feeling loved and connected and, and at peace and at one, we can rewire our brain. And we can't rewire the brain if we're in fear, uh, certainly not the things that are really uh, embedded in our real protection mechanisms. We just can't do it. And then once we've rewired our brain and have new thoughts and new ideas, we can then remix our world in any way we want. And remixing is an idea from music where you take a track that exists, or take a song uh, that exists, and you, you take the parts, uh, you separate the parts, and you create a new song based upon the old song. So we don't, we're not starting in the world with a blank canvas. There's an existing world, existing businesses, existing family life. 
Um, and what my invitation is is to get ourselves switched on so that we can actually remix anything we like in our life and, and, and play a part in, in transforming it. You really do that so eloquently in the book. Do you think that the younger generation, which, as you so rightly say, is going to really have to shoulder the burden of pulling us back from the brink, um, do you feel that they are switching on, that they are um, realizing that they're part of a greater whole and, and sensing that need for service? Yes. Yes, but. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've staked my future on it, both as an individual teacher and with my wisdom and well-being company. We're really focusing on that demographic um, with our courses and products and, and, and events and things. So, so, yes, I think there's a deep, deep, deep yearning. Um, I think there's a deep insight that, we, that this generation, my generation, feels we're part of the solution we have to be, uh, we have no choice, um, um, but at the same time, this generation is also has more stress than any generation before it, has high levels of depression, um, has more unemployment. You know, there are, there are some quite severe personal crises. Suicide is, is, is the number one killer of, of uh, young men in the U.S., um, number one, you know, more than road traffic accidents. And so... Yes, there's a yearning. Yes, there's a belief that I've got to sort my life out, and I've also got to make sure there's a planet to, to live in. But I'm also don't have a job, or I don't have a job that I that fits my education, and I'm kind of depressed, and I find it hard to you know commit to things. So there's a lot of there's a lot of blockage and obstacle, and so um, I'm very passionate with my work, saying, listen, guys, you've got everything you need within you. You are part of the future. Um, let's work together. Let's do this. And when I teach uh, classes to that age group, so I was teaching at Yale recently and, and had a really mixed group with lots of different people from different uh, departments, and they are so hungry for insight, not so much knowledge, insight, wisdom, what we would call wisdom. And the, I, I love teaching them because it's one of the only places where I get to truly uh, fly between spiritual truth, social change, how to run a business, uh, how to be a leader, how to deal with relationships. They want they, all of it, and they see the connections. Whereas in the more established culture, I find that everything has to fit within these very tight genre boundaries between, you know, is it mind, body, spirit, or is it social change, or is it, you know, it's like, well, these guys don't think in that way anymore. Um, uh, and so you see this beginning of interest in things like spiritual economics, sacred economics, or, or um, conscious business, because we're sort of blending, these, blending the genres together. You have a very upbeat take on problems. Um, how did you come to believe it? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I think maybe that came from my innovation background, where you start all projects with a problem. So, so that's the kind of... The discipline of, of innovation is, but, then, but you also realize that all problems are therefore opportunities waiting to be revealed. So that's a very um, sort of clear journey, and I guess the, the discipline is to see our own problems in that way, and that's not always easy when you're in the middle of it. So, you know, someone you love passes away, you 
get dumped uh, by someone, you lose your job. When we, when we have a profound personal problem, it's very hard to have the flexibility of mind and heart to be able to see that in a positive way. But part of the lesson, I guess, of this process that I've been working on and, and, and explaining in the book is that when you get through it and you, and you use it as a tool for awakening, for deepening your connection to spirit, to, to love, to life, you always end up in a place where you have more meaning than before. It may not be a better place in terms of more money or more health or something, but you have more meaning and more connection and more understanding of who you are. So I guess that's where my optimism about problems comes from, is that if you really go into them and, and use them for what they are, you always end up um, in a place that's, that's just more alive and more whole. And we are back speaking with Nick Seneca Jankel about his book, Switch On. Nick, who? Did your parents give you the name Seneca, or did you take it on after you went to Cambridge? Do you know what? I had this intuition you are going to ask me that about ten minutes ago. No one's asked me. In every interview, no one's ever asked me. It's actually my middle name. I see that. And my great-grandfather, uh, Seneca, was his first name, and I was given the name by my folks, um, I guess in memory of him, but in, I guess in some kind of precognition. And about two years ago, I thought, you know, I love this name, Seneca, and, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of Stoic philosophy, uh, and Seneca was a, a great Stoic um, and writer and essayist and, and whatever. I thought, you know what, I'm going to, rather than go to India and be given a, a sort of Sanskrit name, I'm going to bring out my own, you know, my own, own potential in my own name. <laughs> so I then popped it in the middle, and now I call myself with my middle name as part of my name. So uh, <laughs> Very good. it's like kind of part of my rebirth, I guess. Indeed. Speaking of rebirth, you have a wonderful um, part in your book that talks about the relationship between the inner child and creativity. Can you expand on that for us? Yeah, I, mean, I guess, I guess in, in many ways as, um, that all creativity in some way, I think, is coming from from something deep within us. And I think when we have a kind of tortured creativity, it's coming from a tortured uh, inner child. And when we have uh, a kind of what might maybe call a harmonic creativity or symphonic creativity, it's coming from a, um, a, maybe a, a healed child, inner child. So because um, people often talk about creativity comes from torment and trauma, and, and in some ways... Yes, um, but I think as we heal ourselves, if we choose to, not everyone does, and certainly a lot of artists don't, but as we, if we choose to heal that inner child, the creativity that comes through us becomes more attuned, more appropriate, more fitting in the moment, more, um, more beautiful, more able to inspire um, joy and beauty and, 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 um, and peace. Uh, so I think that's part of what the work is on, on being creative is to sort of bring up our inner child inside us and say, you know what, you don't need to be stuck anymore in these old patterns. You know, there's a, let's come join, come join me. Come join me and bring your playfulness and your cheekiness and your innovativeness. Bring it into this wise adult version of me. Um, which is part of the, the deep healing work that, that I 
do, and I talk about it in the book, the benefit of it is to have this very, um, I, I could sort of distinguish between childlike and childish. Mm-hmm. You get a childlike way of seeing the world, um, not a childish one. So a wounded inner child is childish, uh, acting out, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, a healed inner child is childlike and brings this wonder and curiosity and, and, and um, what would be called like a relentless desire to experiment uh, into everyday life. And that really can be very, you know, making a meal or, or talking to our partner in a different way. That, that's the playfulness of the inner child coming out. Before the break, we were talking about the sort of inner need that we have for meaning in what we do in the world. So between a sense of meaning and an outlet for creativity, which do you think um, is more important or are they equally important? Well, I probably they'd say they're the same thing. That's, I think... I think the living a creative life, not only artistic life, because I don't, I, I don't talk about art as, as a thing. I talk about creativity, meaning talking to the postman differently, you know, taking a different route to work, acting differently in, the, in a meeting. Really mundane creativity. That, for me, is the source of um, the richness of life and the meaning of life. And if you do that lots and lots, you end up with a very different life from, from how you would have done without that. And I, so I think that our creativity is, is what allows us actually to create better, not better, new meaning, more inspiring meaning than the habits, our mental habits would give us um, by labeling something wrong or bad or ugly or unpleasant. When we're creative, we can go, actually, maybe that problem isn't awful, maybe it's actually a source, you know, a way of me realizing what grief really is or what sadness really is. And suddenly we've given it meaning, mm-hmm. a meaning that we can embrace and, and, and say yes to rather than a meaning that we want to reject. So part of the saying yes to life and the surrender to what is, is to have creativity with what, we, what something means to us. Well, that's more or less what you're referring to by switch on. You're, you're yes, switching on the juices uh, for the creative life as opposed to exactly. dropping out or numbing yourself with, with mindless distraction, purchases, shopping, uh, whatever. Absolutely. And speaking critically of my own um, sort of world, a lot of spiritual practice, as I know very well, can also be numbing in, in some way or, or, or disassociating. Mm-hmm. Uh, what people call spiritual bypass is, you know, the, 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 see- the seeking of the bliss experience as opposed to the daily hard work of dealing with our shadow, with the world's shadow. Um, but I believe it, it's that daily work which gives us the juice, which gives us the meaning, gives us the, the inspiration is really bringing our problems inside us and not rejecting them and not trying to avoid them. And actually, back to a biological metaphor, I use the word metabolize our problems. Mm -hmm. Take them inside us as a cell takes in its nutrients and use the problems as the raw materials for our transformational breakthroughs, which, you know, we've been taught for millennia. I mean, the dark might of the soul is that very, very process, the process of taking the worst fear and somehow, with courage and fortitude and listening to our heart, it becomes the light of 
God or spirit or whatever we want to. I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed or read who have used exactly that experience of the dark night of the soul to catapult them into an awakening, into a new path in their life. Absolutely. I think that's, that's one of the characteristics of, sh of, of shamans uh, uh, in different cultures, is often they've had life or death or, or near life and death experiences um, that they've managed to catapult them into a place of transformational power as opposed to break them. And that's the, I think that's the choice we all get. And I think that some people get given it in a different way or earlier or, 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 or whatever. Um, but I think everyone has that capacity to use these experiences to catapult, um, to break through. Now, finding one's purpose in life is rather central to actually being able to act on it. Is there a simple absolutely. way to know if we're on the right track? Yes, absolutely. And so I talk about in the book this idea which um, befuddles me and other people, that we don't choose our purpose. Our purpose seems to kind of emanate from us when we clear away the blockages and the, and the, and the, um, the, the shadow. But we do choose then what we do with our purpose. So we get to choose whether we use it purposefully or not, or whether we kind of push it away. And there's this wonderful um, metaphor people uh, 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 use, which basically goes along the lines of, you know, what is hell? Hell is meeting the person you could have been if you'd lived according to your purpose. Which I think is an incredible um, inspiration and a warning mm -hmm. that... Um, you know, the last thing we want to be doing is lying on our deathbed thinking about, you know, what could have been if we'd really grounded our being in this sense of purpose. And as, you know, as the saying goes, no one ever worries about, no, no one ever wishes they'd been to more meetings. You know, that's <laughs> not something that we spend our, our later years, I don't think, uh, worrying about. What we do worry about is, did I play enough with my kids? Did I um, have enough fun? You know, did I challenge myself enough? And that's what purpose is. Purpose for me isn't, isn't about the goals. It's not, it's not goal-oriented. Purpose is, is the opposite. It's intention outwards. It's, it's about bringing that purpose to every moment of life, whether it's ordering, you know, tacos or, you know, it's just the daily moments of, of every day where life is lived. But do you bring your purpose into that? Do you bring your creativity, your meaning, your passion, your inspiration uh, into these uh, little moments? Um, and yes, pu and purpose can build into a big vision, but it's not the big vision. It's not a career, career goal. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like the poet Robbie Burns once said, <laughs> of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are, it might have been. Mm. So, yeah. okay, Nick, what is the difference between self-delusion and either paranoia or pronoia? <laughs> well, first let me describe paranoia and pronoia, uh, and then maybe we can talk about that, um, the self-delusion, which is um, definitely something to be avoided unless it's done fully consciously and, and with wisdom. So for me, the paranoia is the sneaking suspicion that the universe and everyone in it is trying to uh, get us in some way or get at us, bring us down. Um, you know, the person who who tries to cut us up on the on the freeway, or you know, the fact that we missed the bus to work. 
that, and, and, and then you give that a meaning, which is somehow about you being wrong or the world being wrong, that's paranoia. And paranoia is, is the exact opposite. It's saying, I missed the bus, but maybe it's because today I would have killed my, I might have been killed on the bus. Who knows? I don't know. Um, but wow, thank you for that universe. You've really uh, helped me. It's about being creative with our meanings so that we um, can find some ray of sunshine, some silver cloud, uh, sorry, some silver lining in every cloud. And yes, here, and, and the thing is that may be totally making it up. But I would argue that the paranoid meaning uh, for all these things is also totally made up anyway as well. And no uh, scientist in the world can ever tell us with 100% certitude that, we, that our paranoid meaning is, is right or our paranoid meaning is right. So what that means to me is we get to choose. And if, if, if me thinking uh, I missed the bus um, because maybe I was meant to speak to my friend uh, who just rang and that's important to them, and that's beautiful, thank you. If that allows me to live in a, um, you know, an attitude of gratitude, a, um, uh, a place of, of devotion and deference to the universe, of surrender uh, and, and, and appreciation, then great, great for me. Um, you know, it's empowering, it's, it's, it's great. Well, going back to um, the Sorry, going Sorry. back to the electrical metaphor in your title, switch on. Basically, yeah. if you go into paranoia or negative thinking, uh, you're switched off and you don't have the current, the juice for living life fully. So, Absolutely. as you say, it is a choice. And as you say throughout your book, you're showing all of the different choice points that where we can make the choice for life, for switching exactly. off. Exactly. Exactly. And it's really that simple. Obviously, it's totally not simple because live, doing that in practice is actually rather challenging, as I found out myself. Um, but it's still, I mean, we are, every moment is, 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 is pregnant with choice. Um, we have a total will, will you know, uh, um, uh, a free choice. I'm not sure we have free will, but we have free choice. Mm -hmm. And in those moments of choice, we get to choose our meaning, our reactions, our, our, our frame of the world, um, and whether ultimately, as you say, whether we're connected and switched on and the juice is flowing, or whether we're shut down and we just use the same predictable responses to everything that we used 10, 15, 20 years ago. So switch on, damn it. Right. <laughs> Nick, <laughs> tell, tell us about your, your, um, your two web, the two websites where you have very interesting projects going. Yes, yeah, so, so um, to make things simple, if people want to sort of discover more about my work, uh, my personal website is just nickjankle.com, and that's a good launch pad to these other two projects. So one of them is a sort of ethical um, uh, management consultancy, so I work with leaders uh, of conscious businesses and, and organizations that are doing good in the world and use all these tools to help them. Uh, that's called We Create Worldwide, um, and that's my uh, little consultancy. And then about three years ago, I set up this new project, uh, which is birthing as we speak, called ripeandready.com, ripe as in avocados being ripe and ready as in getting in action in the world, which is um, a kind of... A, uh, I guess a sort of uh, Airbnb of wisdom and well-being and trying to bring this new generation of teachers 
uh, into the world and give them the support and the tools to collaborate and co-create uh, amazing wisdom, wisdom content, ideas, uh, services, and events. Well, Nick, you are such an example of somebody walking your talk, and I know that uh, the people on your Ripe and Ready site are all of that ilk. Are you optimistic for the future? Um, it's, it's a really good question. I, I am. I'm a, I'm a kind of skeptical optimist. So I still approach everything with a kind of, okay, show me the, show me the juice. Um, I'm not a Kool-Aid drinker, um, yet I kind of, um, I do fundamentally believe human beings have the potential for creativity and collaboration. I see it around me all the time. I believe we have the ingenuity that is needed to break through the problems we face as a species. I think there's going to be lots of challenges along the way, and those of us who are not, I guess, switched on and ready for them are going to find it extremely challenging. Uh, I think we're not going to have the same kind of lifestyle that we've been used to where we can fly somewhere every other weekend and, and all that. I, don't, I, don't, I think we're going to have to adjust our expectations um, of what's possible. But if we do that and surrender the, this sort of way of living, we can find a beautiful, uh, harmonious way where we can all have what, what we need rather than what we want. You know, that's such an important point that I want to underline, uh, that... The, the future is going to be different, and we're going to be making it up as we go along. And the people who think that we can go back to the old days have been drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, <laughs> and the, the other thing is that we have to learn to share our resources, to dial back our desires, and to realize that the greater good the, the peace that can come from giving everyone, you know, the basic necessities of life um, and, you know, just just the, the peace that can come in your own heart from knowing that you are not, um, you know, consuming at someone else's expense is just invaluable. So I, I really want to commend this book, Switch On, uh, and the vision behind it. To, to all our listeners. Um, Nick, do you have a final message for our listeners? Oh, which one? I guess a quick one. I've been, I've been thinking in my mind recently is anything that we can't let go of imprisons us. And that's, that's, and that's my message for the day. Very good. Very good. Well, well, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Nick. And Thank I you. want uh, to invite our Pleasure. listeners to join us next week when my guest will be Barbara Marks Hubbard talking about the reissue of her book, Conscious Evolution, one of the great teachers. Until then, I invite you to visit New Consciousness Review on ncreview.com and leaf through our magazine. You can subscribe for free and never miss an issue. Well, that's our show for today. I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank Nick Jankel. And remember, his book is Switch On. I do hope you'll tune in next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Be good to yourself, do good in the world, and let your light shine.